I've got a very serious question for you all this evening. What do John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Their middle name. (laughs) I'm glad nobody said they're both cartoon characters. Well done for that. (laughs) That means you've been paying attention. Uh, Yeah, this evening we're going to look at a bit of a longer portion and we're going straight from verse 22 right to the end of John chapter 3. So it is a longer bit, but that's because it all ties in together as one narrative. And remember, as we've said, when there's narrative in the gospel of John, it's not strictly for storytelling. It's to uh, substantiate John's purpose for writing this gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing you will have eternal life. So this glorious gospel exposition that we've had with Nicodemus and Jesus has ended. And at first glance, it feels like this next bit is a little bit out of place, but it's truly in place. We see what Jesus has said in application now, in some sense. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. John chapter three, verse 22, all the way to 36. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, the land of Judea could also mean in the wilderness where John was baptizing. He was beyond the Jordan, but now they are baptizing on this side in Judea. It's a sparsely populated area, quite an isolated place. And they went there to go and baptize, probably to get away from the Pharisees and probably because there was a lot of water there, as we shall read. Verse 23, and John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. That word Anon means many springs. So obviously that infers that implies that there was a lot of water. Verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So this gives us some context before John uh, had his head chopped off and before the things went wrong for him. This is when he was still busy. Therefore, there arose a debate between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. All what we have seen and heard of that he bears witness and no one receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
Father, as we look at your word this evening, I pray for clarity. Pray that your spirit will open our hearts and our ears to what you have to teach us, that we won't come with baggage to your word, but we'll allow, that you will allow the word to transform our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verses 22 to 24. After these things, Jesus came with his disciples into the land of Judea. Big question here is, why is Jesus baptizing? Well, as we shall read in the next chapter, John 4, it's not actually Jesus doing the physical baptism, but his disciples. But it's no mistake that John has included this into his gospel. He's obviously got a very intentional purpose for saying Jesus was baptizing. Now, the Greek word there is a third person singular. So it can only mean he was baptizing. Not they were baptizing or you were baptizing or he or she or it was baptizing. He, uh, referring to Jesus. Now, what we've been discussing in John chapter 3 is a different kind of baptism. Regeneration. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, he will be baptizing with the Holy Ghost and fire, the Holy Ghost being regeneration, fire being judgment when he comes back for the second time. But that's what we've seen in John chapter 3. You must be born of the water and of the Spirit. Regeneration. Now, what we have here is this wonderful juxtaposition of John's baptism of repentance and Jesus' baptism of regeneration. Jesus came to baptize with his disciples. Now, the disciples were doing physical baptism, but John says Jesus was doing the baptism. He wasn't physically doing the baptism, but something else was happening there. At the same time, John was also baptizing. But we know that John doesn't have the power to produce regeneration. It's not a thing that comes from man. It can only come from God. And so why would Jesus be baptizing and John be baptizing? It seems weird at first glance, but there's a deeper theological metaphor going on here. Something that's happening in the hearts of the people that Jesus is baptizing that's probably not happening in the hearts of the people that John is baptizing. We're not talking about the physical act of baptism. We're talking about the baptism of repentance versus the baptism of regeneration, baptism of the spirit. And obviously this leads to some confusion and a point of contention, and that's what we see in verses 25 to 26, a debate, a debate between the disciples of John and a Jew. Now remember, a Jew in John's gospel often refers to the religious elite, the Jews, talks about the religious elite. So we read that a Jew had a debate with John's disciples about purification. Now debate can also mean controversy. So there was controversy around the issue of ceremonial and moral purification. The precise nature of that controversy we do not know. But we do know that the religious elite in Jerusalem had their eyes on John. And they obviously now had their eyes on Jesus, who had just been to Jerusalem and performed signs and wonders and cleansed the temple. So the Pharisees most probably are obviously awake. What's going on here? And it's very possible that they sent a Jew to go and cause strife and division amongst the people here. And he went to John's disciples and had a problem with them. And that problem is that the issue of purification. We don't know what it was, 
but we do know John was baptizing and Jesus was baptizing. So it's possible that this man was sent to cause division and strife amongst the disciples of Jesus, amongst the disciples of John, amongst the crowds. Something like John is baptizing for purification, but look, here nearby is Jesus doing the same thing. Obviously, you guys are confused. Obviously, you don't know what baptism means. Obviously, you are not true teachers because you're doing something and here's another guy doing the same thing. You know, what's, where's the purification here? You're teaching one thing, he's teaching another thing. What's going on here? Now, why would John's disciples doubt this message? Because John said to them, I'm not the Christ. In fact, at the beginning of John, well, towards the end of John run in the beginning, we read that uh, when Jesus walked past, John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And some of John's disciples went and followed Jesus. And John let them go. Because he realized, here's the Messiah. John's job was to announce the Messiah. When the Messiah came, by all means, follow him. Don't follow me. And this shows us what happens when we allow the enemy to tickle our ears with these little bits of strife and discord and division and these issues of contention. You know, we, can, we can't stop a bird from sitting on our head, but we can stop it from making a nest. And these disciples obviously let that bird make a nest because they came to John. They came to John and they said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan. And they know who Jesus is because they say, to whom you have borne witness. He is baptizing and all are coming to him. He's saying that in a negative sense, all are going to him. What's going on here? And then John gives this beautiful response that puts them all to bed. In John uh, 20, uh, in verse 27 to verse 30. He says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him. What does this mean? They have no ministry unless it comes from heaven. Such a simple yet profound statement. Nothing. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Their message and teaching is no message and teaching unless it comes from heaven. The crowds of people wanting to be baptized are not there because they want their hearts touched with some meaningful, beautiful human message. Maybe, maybe there was some part of that, as there are many in the church today. But they weren't there, they weren't going to receive anything unless it came from heaven. They weren't there to receive a fancy message from John. In fact, if they were there for that purpose, he would have called them, <laughs> lumped them in with the Pharisees and called them a brood of vipers, most probably. John came with a message. But that message meant nothing to the people if it didn't come from heaven. Now concerning himself, John says again, you know that I have said, I am not the Christ. I am not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom who rejoices when he hears the bridegroom's voice. He says, my joy has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And there are some magnificent truths to what John says here. If you have received something from heaven, be grateful. Be grateful and do 
What are you going to do with this that you have received from heaven? It comes to you with a stamp of approval from the one who is above all things. If it comes from heaven, we know it's from the one who is above all. Above all power, above all nature, above all created things, above all wealth, above all the treasures of the earth, above all wisdom of man. It comes from heaven. Likewise, if we are grateful and do, then our attitude must be that our joy is made complete, that our joy is full. If we know that we have received, and with that reception we are grateful, and we do something with that which we have received, then we are happy. Our joy is made complete. We have received that which can only come from above. We cannot do anything unless we have been given that which comes from above. And therefore, like John, we can say, our joy is made complete. Not going to me made complete. It's not an insurance policy that you take out. It's not a, a take-a-lot order that you're waiting three days for the box arrive, to arrive before you can be happy. He says it now, my joy is made complete. And if our attitude towards Christ is that our joy is complete, then it must be natural. It can only be natural for him to increase while we must decrease. This is the pattern that we have here. We receive. With that reception, we are happy. And if we are happy with what we have received, how can we ever be happy with what we have already? We cannot. What's in here must decrease, while he who is above all must increase. It starts in my heart, but also in my life, in, in the church, in my family. His gifts must be known. His message must be spread. His fame must be broadcast to all. And as much as that is so, I must decrease in all of those things. That's what John is saying to his disciples. Because that's what it's about at the end of the day. His disciples are concerned for John's reputation. Which baffles me, the mind, because uh, John bore witness about Jesus. His disciples would have heard him. And his disciples come to him and say, this man is baptizing of whom you have borne witness. So they recognize who he is. And yet they are still concerned for John's reputation. They're still concerned about John's ministry. And I wonder if any of us get stuck in that attitude, that mentality. We so focused on the church or the way that we do things at the church or who our pastor is or who our friends are in the church, our leaders are in the church, that we, we miss the one of whom they have borne witness, to whom they have borne witness. We cannot miss the Christ. As we shall remember from last week, everything hinges on what you do with the Son of God. Here's the Son of God. The people have testified about him. Don't miss him. Now at the same time, this does not negate our responsibility before God as man. This does not mean that I do not have any responsibility now. 
saying that he must increase and I must decrease. John the baptizer was to announce the Messiah. He fulfilled his mission. He announced the Messiah. And thereafter, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. So he still had a mission to fulfill. He still had a responsibility. Now, we are not John the baptizer, but we know what our ultimate mission is. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Our chief end is to glorify God. Our mission is to glorify God. And we cannot carry out that mission if our attitude is one of, well, I need to do something about glorifying God. It's not going to work. We cannot do that on our own accord because we are sinners. We have a sinful nature. Nothing good can come from the sinful nature. But that doesn't mean we don't have the responsibility to still do that. It is our duty to fear God and to keep his commandments. It is our duty to glorify God with our whole being. But the point is we cannot even do that if we are not decreasing and he is increasing. Remember, as Pastor Paul spoke about this morning, the disciples couldn't even stay awake with Jesus for one hour in the garden of Gethsemane. They couldn't even stay awake with him for an hour or two, maybe three, maybe four. Where do you draw the line? Without him increasing and me decreasing, I cannot fulfill my chief purpose in life. I cannot fulfill my purpose, my responsibility I have to glorify God. I cannot do that unless he increases and I decrease. Verse 31 to 36, he who comes from above is above all. Like we've seen in John chapter 3, there's such a massive difference between heaven and earth. And the fact that Jesus comes from heaven. And we on earth cannot understand that he has come from heaven. We cannot understand his message because man loved the darkness. Heaven and earth in John's gospel are presented as contrasts. He speaks with a heavenly perspective. We understand from an earthly perspective. It's never going to work. Obviously, heaven is the far superior place. You can't even make the argument that, well, maybe we can make something, try and make something work out with an earthly perspective. Nonsense. It's never going to work. Heaven is far superior. In fact, it's not even on the spectrum. Heaven is the spectrum and we are outside of it. Verse 32 literally says, no one receives his witness. Why? His witness is heavenly and eternal. We cannot naturally receive it. No one in their natural state receives his witness. But verse 33 gives us hope. He who has received us set his seal to this, that God is true. When he does work in our hearts, when he works in our hearts, not John the baptizer, not any other pastor or any other spiritual leader, not myself, 
who thinks that I read my Bible and I've got it sorted and figured out, when he works in our hearts, we do receive it. And we can only receive it when he works in our hearts. His love, his grace is so powerful that when it moves in us, it overpowers that sinful nature, that natural resistance we have to God and that natural proclivity we have towards sin. So when he moves in our hearts, we do receive it and we testify that God is true. Verse 34 confirms this. He gives the spirit without measure. In the Greek, it literally reads, not by measure. There is no scale. There is no weight. There's no instrument by which to determine the amount of spirit that he gives us, the quantity of spirit that he gives us. This means that we have more than enough coverage for life in the new covenant. We always have the spirit without measure. He's always there. He's always sustaining us. He's always living in us when he's moved in our hearts so that we can live this life with a new eternal perspective. Imagine having an insurance policy like that without measure. At any stage, you can phone up your company and say, I need, I need money. Somebody bumped my car. Here we go. Choof. The catch is, that insurance company demands your life, your all, <laughs> your whole being. And none of us would want to give that to an earthly human insurance company. But if you don't give it to the Son of God, you are judged and damned. Verse 35 and 36 again, it's all about Jesus. Not only has the Father given all things into Jesus' hand, but we read that the Father loves the Son. Jesus isn't just some governor, some appointed authority. He's an appointed authority whom the Father loves. And so it goes without saying that we cannot love the Father if we do not love the Son. We cannot know the Father if we do not know the Son. We cannot come to the Father if we have not come to the Son. Because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Without him, we do not see life. We do not have that eternal quality of life that we spoke about last week. That eternal quality of life that we have now when we believe. That in its fullest measure will come when we are with him forever. That eternal quality of life that's not just about the length of life. But the life that is built on a foundation that stands the test of time. That endures through all things forever. This is why John is so convinced of his position and mission. John the baptizer. Hopefully after this the disciples who had their confidences shaken by this informant catch a wake up and realize that even though John the baptizer is doing this baptism of repentance, Jesus is also doing it. So Jesus must be better. Even if baptism was John's trademark, if Jesus is doing it, it is better. And that must be our attitude as well. Maybe we're doing something good 
in church. Whatever it is. Fellowship is good. Fellowship is nice. And we go to the Bible and we read how Jesus fellowshiped. How Jesus dined with sinners. But also how he called them out. He did something better. How maybe our understanding of what we do here. Something else like communion. We take it regularly. Maybe we kind of understand what it, the basic principle means. But we go to the word and realize that Jesus drank from that cup of wrath. So that we don't have to. We now drink of the cup of the new covenant. Of his blood. So we do this in church. But Jesus did something. And therefore it is better. Maybe we love one another. And we care for one another. And we send each other lasagna when we're sick. But Jesus loved. And Jesus loved better. And so we see this regeneration taking place here at the end of John chapter 3. Jesus is baptizing. John is baptizing. Jesus does it better. John's disciples came to him with this earthly perspective. Hey, what? You are losing your fame here. You're losing the crowds. What's going on? John says, He must increase. I must decrease. Jesus does it better. And so, two quick take home lessons for this evening. You know the truth. Do not let anyone deceive you. You know you've been saved. You know that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Do not be deceived. If you know you're part of the kingdom, be grateful that you have received what can only come from heaven. And do it. And don't let anybody take that away from you. And then secondly, even if there is something good now, if Jesus does it or says it, it is always better. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the son whom you love. Thank you that all things you have given into his hands. And you have given us this choice. What do we do with the son of God? We know that we cannot receive his testimony from our earthly perspective. But thank you that we have because of your spirit who has moved in our hearts. Thank you that we bear the seal now that God is true. That you have poured out your spirit without measure for us. That we can live in this eternal quality of life. In this new covenant now. By your sustenance. By your spirit. And for that we say thank you. Lord Jesus forgive us where we've gone astray. Forgive us where we've been willingly deceived. We know the truth. How often it is that we still chase after the things of the flesh. And yet every single time you bring us back. For those of us this evening who need a John the Baptist to say, I am not the Christ. There he is. He must increase. You must decrease. Lord Jesus, I pray that that person will be shown. In all our hearts as well this evening, you must increase as we decrease. Help us too to 
have a look at our hearts and the things that we do. And also that we look at the things that you have done and compare them. Help us not to be stuck in what we are comfortable with. But if you have done it, to remember that it's always better with you. Thank you that you live in our hearts. Thank you that you are guiding us and leading us every single day. Helping us to live new life in your kingdom. We give you thanks. We acknowledge you as the one who is above all. And we say thank you for seeing us, for being crushed for us. What an awesome and mighty and powerful message that we have, this gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father God, for giving up your son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading us in this new life. We say thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.